Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend and interview writers at writers' festivals. You are listening to the first episode of the Books, Books, Books podcast, in which I talk to the best writers from Australia and overseas about their new releases. In these challenging times when we've all been forced to slow down a little, it's important, I think, to focus on the things that bring us joy. Books are a great source of joy for many of us, but there are so many to choose from that it can feel a little overwhelming. Usually you can go to writers' festivals, book launches or events at bookshops to find out about the latest books, but sadly all of those have been cancelled for the moment. I hope that this podcast will help to fill that gap. Each week I'll speak to a different writer about their new book. I'll be introducing you to new writers and chatting to some old favourites. So make yourself a cup of tea, get comfortable and settle in for some quality me time. Listen to all episodes on my uh, website, nicoleabdy.com, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. So it's my absolute pleasure for the first episode to welcome Dr. Julia Baird. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Nicole. It's a great pleasure. I've got my cup of tea and I am settled in. Fantastic. So <laughs> I'd like to just introduce you to our listeners, although I'm sure you are obviously very well known. Julia is an author and an award-winning journalist who hosts The Drum on the ABC and writes columns for the Sydney Morning Herald and the New York Times. She did her PhD on female politicians and the press, and that was the basis for her first book, Media Tarts. In 2016, she published her extraordinary biography of Queen Victoria, which was one of the New York Times' top 10 books of 2016. She describes herself as a thalassophile, which I now know is someone who loves the sea. Today we'll be discussing Julia's latest book, Phosphorescence, on awe, wonder and things that sustain you when the world goes dark. Julia, before we start talking, could you read a passage from, uh, from your book, please, the one near the front? Yep, sure. <clears throat> a few years back, I was suffering heartbreak so intense, I lost my appetite for months and barely slept. I was skeletal, scattered, shorn of confidence. I called my counsellor in tears and said, I just don't know how I'm going to get through this. He told me that when he was a young man, he'd once said exactly the same thing to a wise mentor of his. This man, an Argentinian, abruptly slapped him and said, it is now that everything that you've been given in your life matters. This is what you draw on, your parents, your work, your friends, your books, everything you've ever been told, everything you've ever learned, this is when you use that. And he was right. What is the point of all you've learned if you can't employ it when you're floundering in a nadir? Haven't all those lessons and loves been pulled in a reservoir you can draw on? Julia, why did you choose the title Phosphorescence for your book? What does that mean to you, that word? Well, I've always been a little bit obsessed with phosphorescence and things that glow in the dark, especially bioluminescence when you see it in the sea, as well as fireflies and um, ghost mushrooms and all those kinds of peculiar animals that are luminous, like way below in the sea's depths. But for me, it was a metaphor for um, the things, how do you stay alight when the world goes dark? I felt like a lot of the time we talk about happiness and what makes you a bit happier or maybe a lot happier. When your circumstances might be basically okay, you, you, you may or may not have, have a job or you might have a family or, you know, everything's okay, but you, you, you want to get to kind of a next level happiness. But I was more interested in the question of 
when, what about when the world just showers you with mud? What about when things go, go really dark? How do you stay alight? And by light, I don't mean like, you know, sparkling like a disco ball to entertain your friends and family. I mean, how do you keep going? How do you just survive sometimes? So, yeah, so that's, that was the way I was thinking about writing about the things that comforted me and kept me going. A few weeks ago, before the darkness of COVID-9 descended, you and a friend and your kids were dancing on the South Coast beach at midnight on the day that your book went to the printer. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, it, was, it was so amazing. So um, obviously my kids had heard me writing and talking about phosphorescence like a lot without really twigging to what it was. And they also had been here when I'd got up a couple of mornings at towards the end of writing my book and I write about this in the last chapter when I'd got up at about quarter to five in the morning and run down to um, my local bay and seen it and I came back just with stars in my eyes going, oh, my gosh, you won't believe what I said. And they were like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, guys, you have to get up. You have. And they were like, not interested. But I was down the coast with this friend and I, it was the very last day I could touch my book. So it had gone off to the printers and I could have nothing more to do with it, which is kind of great and discombobulating at the same time. And um, I'd heard that there was some phosphorescence. So that you do get some on the New South Wales south coast. Um, although it's still rare and you're very lucky to see it. But I'd heard, I, I drove, we all had dinner and quite late at night, it was getting up towards midnight really, we all piled into cars. My friend, her two kids, and we had a, several kids with us actually, um, and we just fanged through the dark to this beach and right down the end of this beach where there's no like natural um, light. So the sky was just thick with stars and we came to the beach, couldn't see anything put a foot in the water and our feet lit up, you know, they lit up like neon and sparkling and we just ran through it and dove under it quite happily because we realised if there was going to be a shark, right, we would see it coming towards us. It would actually light up. So we were diving under and like throwing the sparkles on us and we were dressed, you know, we had black swimmers on that were all lit up and these starry footprints along the beach and it was so magical. And um, the kids were just jumping around like puppies. And now they're like, oh, now I get it. Oh, now this is what you've been doing. And we went down again a few weeks ago before the world shut down and they were like, oh, can we go back to that place? I was like, guys, it doesn't, it's magic. Like I can't tell you, I, we can't decide when it's going to happen. You just happen to be there when it, when it does. So, yeah, that was really great. Julia, your book was published three weeks ago in late March. I'm not the first person to notice that your timing could not have been more perfect. The world has gone dark for all of us and we're all desperately searching for light. Now, obviously, you couldn't have known that at the time that you wrote it. When did you start writing it and what prompted you to write it? Um, I, I mean, I really did start thinking about I mean, I've pulled together threads of thoughts and scribblings that I've been doing for many years now. But um, I, I didn't really start to write as a coherent body of work until I, I suppose it was maybe about two years ago. Um, and I was just trying to write. It was after I'd first got sick and I just wanted to get some stuff down and I just wanted to get down the things that um, comforted me and the things that had given me some kind of joy or sustenance um, over that time and actually it was really lovely to write because of that because it meant that whatever I was doing in my life I could take time out and then sit down and just think through 
beautiful stuff. It was, it, yeah, it was, it was such a, it was such a great thing to write. The only thing annoying thing is ever footnotes. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that was, that was, that was when I wrote it. It was a while back. And of course I didn't anticipate that this would happen to the earth. You know, I had no idea. Um, we're going to me, come. I'm sorry, go on. No, no, for me, it was more of a, um, in case of emergency break glass thing. And then suddenly everyone's like, I'm breaking the glass. You know, like the world's gone dark. So, yes. yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. I obviously want to talk to you about COVID-19 and your, your thoughts about that. Mm. For now, let's start with the first part of your book uh, on awe, wonder and silence. So you write about awe, the experience of seeing something greater than ourselves. And you say you find awe by diving into the ocean most mornings. What does that do for you and where else can we find awe? Um, for me, I find it very calming and um, it just kind of gives me a level of peace and happiness. I've got up, I've done something, I've seen some beautiful stuff. I've usually seen some people, though I have to be swimming on my own at the moment. You can't actually swim with other people, obviously. Um, and I don't know, it just lifts my day to a whole other level. I, I do love it when, if I've spied some big schools of fish. There's a lot of yellow fish around at the moment and there's a turtle in the bay and um, I love that. I love that kind of dose of, of wonder. I think awe can be found in so many different ways. Like scientists are talking now about micro doses of awe. They're measuring awe in the sense of goosebumps. Um, I think a lot how, of how do, how do they do that? They they can actually measure people's goosebumps. Yeah, the, yeah, the response to seeing or hearing things by the goosebumps that you get. And that's meant to be a sign of awe. I mean, we also get goosebumps when we're kind of scared or when we're cold, but I, I, they really, that's how, that is actually how they're measuring it. So, um, yeah, but awe for me is really, about, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is about being in nature and being small and being, um, you know, near an enormous sea or body of water or rushing river or under a big, um, yawning sky of stars in a forest, anything in which your place, you're reminded of your rightful place in the world as kind of an ant, ant amongst any many other ants. You know, Julie, you write about a lot of studies that have been done about the benefits of being in nature. And there are a couple of really interesting ones. I just wanted if you could talk to us a little bit about um, the students in the dorms that had the nature views and the prisoners in cells that looked out on trees. Can you tell me about those studies and what what they revealed? Yeah. Um, well, look. The, I mean, the over, overarching thing with the studies of nature is that the more green you're exposed to, the better off you are, even in smaller amounts. And especially also when you're young, it's better for your physical health, for your mental health. Um, it's good when it's on your neighbourhood block. It's good when you can go to a local park. It is good when you have plants in your home. Like I was really quite overwhelmed by the amount of research that there was into all of this. Mm. Um, the the University of um, the Michigan study about prisoners was looking at prisoners who were on uh, on on one hand looked out onto you know brick walls or absolutely nothing in their cells on the other hand a view had a view of green and those whose cells had a view of green just did much better in terms of both physical and mental health and they got similar studies um, of patients in hospital as well. Um, those who see green are more likely to recover more quickly and um, less likely to um, ask for antidepressants. Um, to be honest, I've forgotten the specific things about the dorm. No. They, did they sleep better? Yeah, I think it was yeah. that. Yeah. Was, yeah, pretty much what you've just described. Yeah. 
Can I ask you then now about wonder? You talk about wonder and you say it's an antidote to distraction. What is wonder? How is it different from awe? And what, what does it do for you? Yeah, I think a lot of people use awe and wonder interchangeably, and I probably did at times as well. But when I tried to think about the difference between them, I think I think awe is really the sense of being dwarfed by something that's bigger than you, something that makes your you go slack jawed and you're amazed and you're stopped in your tracks. That oh, sense of wow, almost overwhelmed. Yeah, and. Um, or getting of goosebumps. And, and wonder's got another element to it because it makes you wonder about the world. Well, that's weird. I've never seen a ladybird that colour or a grasshopper eat in such a way. The, you know, the, that, that shape of that way that tree kind of splits into two and then rejoins and kind of it's the extraordinary ways that trees operate. Um, and wonder is a very important thing. And I think in a number of ways it makes us think about the world outside ourselves so it really stimulates a sense of curiosity and Martha Nussbaum the American philosopher talks about how we need to teach wonder to children which of course Rachel Carson wrote about as well um the woman who really in many ways was a touchstone of the modern environmental movement um talks about taking you know young children by the hand and walking them through um you know wild wilderness areas and and encouraging them to wonder at what they see. And Martha Nussbaum says that even built into Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is an important question because you're saying to the kid, I, you know, the kid is saying, I wonder what that is. Mm. Like, what is that mm. star? You know, and from that very question, you know, millions of brains have boggled and tried to grapple with a world much bigger than them and, you know, many scientists I'm sure began kind of wondering exactly what that star was too. So. Yeah, I think, and I, but I think I don't think I think what we don't really think about much is why wonder is is important and how much it can sustain us if we are if we're feeling miserable and we are despairing and we're really uncertain about a bunch of things to get out outside ourselves and to pursue things like awe and wonder. Um, you talk about the importance of feeling small that that we as humans need to realize how small we are and to think about smallness. Yeah, and not even. Like I spoke to someone the other day who said that she really finds that discombobulating because she doesn't like feeling small because it's, you know, powerless and all that kind of thing. And I don't mean that. I don't mean the rest of the world is walking around all completely dandy and, you know, large. <laughs> you want to be like an amoeba in the middle of it. It's more that we are all small. Yeah. We are all um, on a planet um, where... We're part, of, we're part of something much, much, much bigger than ourselves. And because of that, we're connected to each other. And because of that, we have to care for each other. And because of that, we also have to care for the earth. And it's much more fragile than we realise. And that's why I was really drawn to the idea of the overview effect and the astronauts who mm. you know, return from space changed men and women. And they say, I can't, couldn't find words. I couldn't tell you what it was. It was the most extraordinary thing. But the sense of being able to block out the earth with your thumb and realise how small we are turned, you know, mathematicians and scientists and engineers and teachers into philosophers and theologians and poets because it got them to think about that smallness. Julia, your book is so rich with research, even without looking at the footnotes. Uh, we can tell in the first few pages you've referred to numerous philosophers, to social scientists, um, to marine biologists. 
how did where did you start your research for this book and where did it take you I guess it's it just seems to have spread so broadly what you've looked at right um I did like a bit of research it was more coming from instincts I'd be like man this like what is it about I was I would guess I was wondering I was just wondering what is it about ocean swimming that just was so great for me and so strengthening for me what is it about that and the, and you know I'd think through the obvious things that I mentioned to you before you're getting some exercise in you know um you're moving your body around you're getting your blood moving you're it's also a very meditational thing then I'd be like then then I'd start to look at the concept of awe and I realized that there's all these burgeoning area of social science um around what that means and, and why it's important and then it, I'd start thinking about why was it so why is it so great to just go and stand in a forest? Like why? What, what is it about it that can just so restore you? And, and then I found this absolute mountain of research about, mm. about, about green and, and about the natural world. And, again, it's, it's kind of the confirming of instinct. So mm. I, I think that's what, what it was, yeah. I was just going to say that these are things that you felt intuitively but then you went away and researched them and found that the, the research coincided with your own instincts. Yes, and of course, and, and I felt um, I was also acutely conscious at several times that these are ancient wisdoms too. It's obviously I'm not like either I'm certainly not discovering them for the first time and I tell you, social scientists certainly aren't discovering them for the first time. I mean, Indigenous people mm-hmm. have been listening to country and telling us about the importance of that um, for those people who would listen for, you know, um, a very long time now and I was very struck by... Um, how little we understand of that and people talk about oh you know they download their meditation apps and talk about you know needing to be quiet and I think calmness and stillness is is really important without actually recognizing that this is this is saturated in the words that first nations people have been been saying um listening to country is a very very profound thing um and actually I really have actually learned that lately this year the that about what it means to listen and if you get into a dispute or if you're you're being savaged over something or you're not sure you just you know just just listen like just listen like it's actually um why is it that your own resolution or your own final words or your own position actually really matters it kind of doesn't a lot of the time you just step aside and you and you listen and I did learn that think about that a lot when I went up to Gama in Mm. in Arnhem, Arnhem land and um, yeah, the idea of Dadiri as well, which is a um, a lot of Indigenous elders talk about that sense of being quiet in, in the wilderness. So we just have so much to learn, I think. And you talk about silence as not necessarily being absolute silence, but silence is an absence of human noise or of human-made noise. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Julia, I wanted to move on to the next stage of your book, um, which is called Fantastically... We are all wiggly. Mm-hmm. You start by talking about your own archives and going through your own records of yeah. uh, something that you were p- very passionate about in your 20s. You were very involved in a campaign uh, in which you fought for the ordina- ordination of women priests in the Sydney Anglican Church. Yeah. Now, you, you say at one point this was a failure. Um, yeah. I assume that that's because you mean because you weren't successful in getting women ordained as priests, <laughs> but you make the point that you've kept boxes of the material and I was wondering why that was and how important is it for all of us, and, and you say especially for women, to keep records of our lives? Yeah. Well, 
But that was the thing. That's why I wrote the chapter. I was really wondering why that was. Like, why on earth did I have these several boxes? And my friends can attest. Some of my friends had them in their garages when I was overseas or, my, you know, stuffed them at my parents for a while. Just I had bits and pieces. And I'm like, what? what is it that... I still actually have a couple of those boxes. What is it that I'm trying to preserve? What, what is the story that I'm trying to tell? And it's, it's not one of like, obviously it's not one of triumphs. Um, I, I look, and I, and I have to say that I approached it as, as a historian. This was the first historical piece of work that I wrote. It was my, it was an honest thesis I did um, in history about, about that campaign for the ordination of women. So I became interested in it as a process, like mm. the process of reform and how feminists challenged the idea of feminists challenged the idea of a male god and authority. And the fact that in a in a Judeo-Christian culture we've struggled with the idea of women exercising authority and power. And I've interrogated that whole idea for a very long time. But yes, in terms of Sydney, it's only gone backwards in 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 allowing women to preach or speak or that kind of thing but the more I thought about it um and I have spent a lot of time in archives you know with my work on Queen Victoria and I know that we keep the scraps of the powerful and the you know people tradition considered important and the people who were there when the photos are taken when the bill is passed you know when the legislation gets through when um you know the final barrier is reached and but actually to get any reform and any change make it takes it takes decades of work and much of it is mind-numbing and half the time it would seem that it doesn't matter and no one's listening and um I mean you could talk to people in the environmental movement for example and I just kind of wanted to say that you have to whatever it is that you've tried to change in your life when we tell the stories of our lives you've got to honor the fact that you cared and the fact that you tried. And we also have to remember that that the liminal years, we have to remember how much work it can take to get something to change. And Rebecca Solnit put it beautifully about talking about how you can see at a time of sudden protests, will, things will spring up like mushrooms but those kind of protests and marches in the street, but actually they're drawing on like a fungus that's been beneath the earth and spreading for years and years. And I just really wanted to encourage people that have been doing that, the fungus people, let's call them, you know, um, and recognise their place in history and also, you know, challenge maybe sometimes the story they tell themselves about the, mm-hmm. the work that they've done and the, and the significance of it. Let's talk a little bit about the need to embrace imperfection which is something you talk about as well and you talk specifically about the Japanese art of wabi-sabi can you tell us a little bit about that yeah wabi-sabi being the um acceptance of things that have a things that are imperfect or things that are aged things that you know like the what is the what is the quote in that like accepting the sheen of antiquity um accepting um fragments and seeing seeing beauty um in not just the fresh and the new and the shiny spank sparkling things that are fresh out of packages um and so what was it i've now gone back to forgetting what your initial question was it was just to explain about wabi sabi and what it means yeah. but yeah and, and oh that's right the imperfection and and i think that there's there's yeah i just i, I just think that's right 
whatever it is that perfection is, and there's been much that's written about this, many, many words that have been spoken, particularly about women, about this mm. onerous and ever-shifting um, nature of, of, of what we're told it is to be, you know, the perfect woman. And it, the, the whole point of it, it's not achievable. And you can spend years and, you know, a, a lot of money and a lot of into the abyss between who you are and who you're told you should be can pour, you know, income, self-esteem, friendships, you name it. And um, I just thought I just wanted to challenge um the way we see ourselves, what we see when we look out in the mirror and whether we're only ever isolating particular fragments or actually accepting the whole. I'm not explaining that very well. No, I understand exactly what you mean. And you talk in that context, you move on to talk about the pressure on everybody to look good, particularly on women. And you talk about social media and how that's only accentuated that and has really ramped that pressure up. Um, There's a lovely bit where you talk about the pressure of that, that, that terrible expression, mutton dressed up as lamb. Yes. And you talk about how the almost the worst thing an older woman can be told is that, you, you know, you look like mutton dressed as lamb. You look like you're trying to look much younger than in fact you are. What I was really interested in was the origin of that expression and that the origin was in fact the opposite. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I love that too. Um, so it was far out. Was it future King George the fourth or fifth, I've forgotten which future monarch it was, who, you know, let's just call him an English nobleman, who was at a um, a ball and this is the first known recorded, you know, usage of that term. And they, someone has pointed out to him, some fine young woman is pointed out and he says, oh, does he take, does this woman take your fancy? And he's like, no, I don't want lamb. I want mutton dressed as lamb, you know. Like I want a woman in her prime, you know, with with the finery or looking. And it was meant to be a compliment, but in fact we now use it as so many things eventually turn to deride women and and the way they look, especially as they grow older. Yeah, I, I love that too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, just... It's it's seeing the beauty in the imperfect. Mm. We see it in people around us. We see some of those like magnificent older women on Instagram who get around with their white hair and their kind of their turbans and their colourful outfits, and they just look so fabulous. No one's going to okay. say, you know what? I don't believe your ears are entirely symmetrical, and that's just really throwing the whole thing off. You know, like that's why I really like the way Elizabeth Jolly writes about watching an older woman watching women get ready for a party and how they're all they're always like younger women, you know, like they were looking in mirrors and kind of tugging at themselves anxiously and checking themselves and honing in on their imperfections instead of kind of saying that, recognising they might be the kind of person that walks in a, in a room and things feel better or people are drawn to because they're warm or they're funny or they have a certain charm. You can't see those things in the mirror. And yet we're taught to, and now Instagram is like infinite fragments of that mirror just in, you know, in square shapes going on and on. And I'm you know, I without a doubt, it can be depressing. That's why I like the women on there who who challenge it. You made a really interesting point about writing about Queen Victoria, how you felt that because she wasn't traditionally described as being good looking or beautiful, you almost felt as though you had to apologise for that. You said you almost felt like you had to find examples of people saying, actually, she was a good looking, you know, she was good looking in her own way. I thought that was really interesting that you as her biographer almost felt that you had to apologise for the fact that she wasn't conventionally beautiful. Yeah, because the number one thing that people would, a lot of people would say to me 
apart from, oh my gosh, that's a lot of work, people would go, but she was so unattractive. But she was so, I'm like, seriously, Winston Churchill, his biographers, is that the first thing they say? Yeah. I mean, is it is that the accessibility of a, of a, of the work their worth? Are people actually going, Winston Churchill, would I sleep with him? Yes or no? Mm. No, it doesn't matter, running the country, a few other things. But with Victoria, I got it repeatedly. So I was like, you know, there will be moments when this woman, who unfortunately was, you know, towards the time of her jubilee, was cast in statues as a very large and grumpy woman, actually had a, a, a graceful way about her. She had, a very, she had a silvery voice. She moved very elegantly. She loved um, ballet dancers. So, yeah, I did. I really kind of resented it. But at the same time, I admired Victoria for going, I'm not wearing corsets, I'm the queen. Like, screw that, right? And also when she was writing letters to her sister, she would just talk about her plainness and that was it. But at the same time, she was interested in the beauty of other people. She loved, like, she just went on about how how hot and handsome um, Albert was, you know, and liked his moustache so much that she made everyone in the army grow one the same. Um, and that's the way we're used to seeing men behave, not waiting for assessments of their behaviour, but actually looking around them um, and, and kind of ranking everyone else. It was refreshing in one sense. Julia, I wanted to ask you about an observation you made about yourself in this context, talk, talking about looks. And th- there's a lovely section where you talk about your mother, how she's very beautiful but she wasn't vain. And mm. you then say, or you move on to say, that you feel comfortable in your skin now after your surgeries and you make the point that for you understandably it's uh it's just a relief that your body is now working and that you're free from pain and you can go about your everyday life I was wondering because you use the word now you're comfortable in your skin now is is almost is that what it took is that almost what it took for you to go through such a horrendous ordeal to actually sit back and think actually it doesn't really matter what I look like the main thing is I have a wonderful body that functions well Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, when you're a teenager, you're not going to have, you're really not going to hear. So if someone says to you, oh my gosh, your body's functional, you can eat a whole meal and digest it. Unbelievable. Like just, you are winning right there. Don't worry about, you know, like no, not a teenager on this earth will say, oh, it doesn't matter how I look in a bikini now on Instagram because, um, you know, I've got a great like digestive system or my spine is working or my spleen's intact. I don't think it takes that necessarily, although I did kind of relish movement in a whole new way once I started moving again. But um, I think a lot of women get like that as they get older. I think you just get, get, you know, you just get over it, right? And you stop worrying about a whole bunch of things. You know, for me, um, I do talk about when I was in my 20s and I went travelling and um, I just, I, I, I don't know. I just started to, when I went to India a lot in my twenties, I, I just kind of got over a lot of that anxiety um, and worry about that, about feeling like I was never measuring up. There's something incredibly liberating about traveling. And again, it's about getting outside of yourself, I think. So yeah, I think for a lot of women, it take, you know, it, it can take years to shed the fact that you don't measure up um, and you're not good enough in in one sense or another. We're taught that. We're taught to loathe ourselves and to find ourselves wanting. There's billion-dollar industries that kind of, you know, rest on it, um, that function very well globally. You know, when you think about the fact that second-wave feminists, um, you know, had large bins where they threw in bras and, um, I don't know, 
eyelash curlers. Think about what we could throw in there now. I mean, it's just, it's got exponentially worse. The expert, what, what we do to groom since then. Although as my daughter keeps telling me, this is empowering. We have a lot of interesting, empowering discussion. Um, How old is your daughter? Is she 13? 13, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, yes, yes, I think. um, But I think it's one of the joys of growing older, and I'm I'm not to observe it, is that you can just get over all of that. And that did happen to me when I was sick. You come out of it going, well, this is pretty much how it is, guys. This is how I look and this is who I am. So we might want to have to deal with that and move along to some other much more interesting things. Let's talk about something that you mention a lot in this book. You keep coming back to it, the notion of grace. Mm. Your mother has it. You write about that. And in that beautiful letter to your daughter, you urge her to acquire it. What is grace, Julia? What does grace mean to you and how can we acquire it? Gosh, it's a good question. I've not been asked that. And I have been thinking about it since writing the book. I mean, look, it, what my mother always taught me was was grace is a kind of magic in the sense that it doesn't make sense. You forgive people who don't deserve it. You do kind things to people that might then bite your hand off. You do it because um, it's the it's the best way to be in the world um, because it can transform people and because it can free you from a lot of things from an inability to forgive, from an inability to care for people. And it takes an incredible strength of character, I think, to be like that. And I have watched my mother be like that for a long time. She always saw the best in people. She always gave them the benefit of the doubt. Um, Are you born with that, do you think? Do you think you're either born with it or you're not? Or can, can we all work to cultivate that in ourselves? I think we can, I, but I think I don't think we see it enough. And this is what I'm kind of thinking about now. I might write something on this because we just, I mean, can you think of the last time you saw an act of grace on the public stage when someone went, you know what, that sounds like you said a really terrible thing, but I get that you didn't mean that. You genuinely didn't mean that. Or, you know, like, like, I, like I was struck when the Obama was, I mean, I think he, he is a gracious, very mm. gracious person and so is Michelle. I mean, that idea of when they go low, we go high, that's grace. Yes, absolutely. And there was someone who heckled Obama once and um, in, in his last presidential campaign and people were yelling um, at, at, at this guy and Obama just went, no, 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 no way. First of all, this guy is a veteran and we are going to respect that and what he did for this country. And this guy was standing there holding, I don't know, we hate Obama, all kinds of like foul things. I can't remember what exactly he was saying. Secondly, he's an elderly citizen and we, and, you know, he is part of the people that we have to look after in this country. And, you know, thirdly, I think it was, it was a question about free speech and it was so refreshing. It was so refreshing when it was all about lock them up and, and we live in a cult, in a culture of verbaling, people saying, I've had this a bit lately with columns, I have to say. People say, what you're saying is this. And you go, no, I, I never said that. Never meant to say that. Would never even dream of, no, 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 you said that. And you go, no, I didn't. Like, I, actually, you can't find the words in which I said that. Um, but people will read in worse motivations, mm. sinister intentions when they're not there. That's if you, if, if, but when you yeah. do, if you do make a mistake on top of that, I mean, heaven help you. So when someone slices through that and you don't see it a lot, it is so powerful to witness. So it's like, part, wow. partly giving someone the benefit of the doubt, thinking totally. the best rather than the worst. Totally. And also accepting we are all screwed up. 
we are all full of mess and doubt and uncertainty and and we all make mistakes all the time. I mean, all the time, like every day. So when someone does it in public, yeah, look, that person is a serial maker of mistakes and they really do buy a lot and they really do not have, you know, look after the vulnerable and do not have people's best intentions at heart. Jump, jump, fine. Or just vote for a different person. But when that's not really the case, we really are in a, I do think we are in a verbaling culture of kind of blood on the water. And um, I, that's, it's a moral righteousness of a crowd that doesn't actually necessarily get us anywhere. Um, And that is a great segue into my next question. I wanted to ask you about Twitter and your Twitter account. I've seen what you've posted about some of what you get sent and have just been gobsmacked by it. Um, The story that I want you to share with us is how you changed your Twitter name to Dr. Julia Baird, Mm -hmm. why you changed that and what happened when you did. And can I just check, from what I could see, you've changed it now just back to Julia Baird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I just changed it and then I felt like I had to do that for so long because I've made a point. I don't really use it. Um, Tell us why. I love the story of what prompted you to do that and then the response that you got. Okay, so someone, it was beginning, around the beginning of when Barnaby Joyce's affair, which is now a marriage with his staff, was broken. And I have, and I tweeted, you know, if that was Barbara Joyce, I think we would have known about this a long time ago. And someone wrote to me, um, do you have any evidence of that or are you just a bitter old sexist? And I went, I tweeted back, yes, I've written a whole P- I've written a PhD on the subject, so it's Dr. Bitter Old Sexist to you, mate. And I literally had written about, and part of my thesis was about the number of times in which press conventions are broken. Like we don't report about politicians' private lives. They're always broken for women. That's what happens. And, they're, and they're much more likely to remain intact for men. That, that point aside... I was shocked by um, the number of people, like a, a lot of people got the joke and some people were just like, how dare you? But the fact that I'd said I have a PhD, which to me is a sign of a lot of work for starters, not a lot of glory in a PhD, mm, certainly no money in it, a lot of work. And it, to me it's a sign of you really had to work hard to, to do something, you really had to have discipline in the end to do something. Um, for a long time, I really wasn't sure why I did it. In the middle of it, I really wasn't sure why I did it. But you do it, and at the end, you're like, you know what? I, you know, again, that's something I really had a good crack at. And um, you got a lot of unpleasant feedback from people saying, "How dare you do that? Aren't you arrogant?" Yeah. Sorry, um, I'm just, just, just distracting. Whereas for me, that's that that's that's what a sign of a PhD is, right? But other people were were saying, yeah, like. Like, that's arrogant, I don't care if you've got a PhD there, that's just as good as a cornflake packet and people are going, can I have one of those cornflake packets because that sounds quite good. But, um, you know, and who do you think you are? And then a woman called Fern Riddell um, wrote a, had, a, had a similar stoush in which a man wrote to her and was like, um, you know, you're really sounding quite immodest now. You're like, and this hashtag immodest woman like erupted around the globe. Where and was she, where was she from, Julia? What country? The UK. And um, I'm pretty sure she was from the UK because she was she's done work on suffragists, but she was writing in response to a Canadian newspaper's um, decision to drop Doctor from that honorific from their reportage. So I put it to my I added it to my Twitter handle, and then I just noticed 
that's how trolls would get me. The fact that it was just seen as such a provocation. How dare you? You absolute wanker. Who do you think you are? Now, some of this is about a dislike of um, an anti-intellectualism. Right? Yeah. So some of that is, you know, just across genders, but there's something particular about women. A lot of men who have doctor on their Twitter handles wrote saying, whoa, I never even knew this was a thing. I've had up mine up for years and no one said a single thing. So I was just like, you know what? All these women added it to their, their handles around the world and were like, screw you guys, I'm going to own it. This just happens to be a bit of work I've done. And I, you know, yes, it's not the world's greatest authority, but it is some authority to say I am an expert in my field and in my chosen field and I have the authority to speak on that. So, yeah. Let's talk now about friendship. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but you talk about a really great concept called Freud and Freund. Yeah. What is it and why should we embrace it? So Schadenfreude, um, we talk about a lot, which is the pleasure you, pleasure you take in another person's misfortune. And Freud and Freuder is the joy that you get from watching someone that you love or just from watching another person take off or succeed or, you know, just do really well at something. And I dug into that when a friend of mine was made, um, who does this really important work teaching creative writing to dis- disadvantaged kids. Um, and she was made the Australia, local Australian of the year. And I was so proud and we were all so proud that I just had this physical feeling of tightness in my chest and I was like, this is the best feeling. And um, it stayed with me all day and, and so I started to look into it and found this word and I was like, why don't we talk about that a lot? And, and when I hopped on to kind of dig around, see if there's any research on it because you know I like that, I found that there was this, this concept that, you know, that social scientists have come up with to talk about that need to take pleasure in things that other people do well. And they were in fact using it as a technique to work with people who had depression or elderly people um, in aged care homes called Freud and Freud enhancement technique or therapy. Um, and that it really did, you know, have some impact on people's moods and, and, and so on. But I just think it's, um, it's something a lot of us experience when we have people that we that we really love and you can actually deliberately think about it more. So you write a lot about friendship. Um, you write about your best friend, Jock, who's one of the people you dedicate the book to along with your um, children and your mother. Yeah. And you say, you talk about the two of you when you were young dancing marathons to escape monotony and restraint and to escape strangulation. I just wondered what you meant by that. What was it that you were trying to escape? Um, was it suburbia? Was it yeah, yeah, conformity? It was, yeah, it was all. It was all of that, which to some extent is a. It's some extent is a familiar refrain for a lot of people who just kind of, you know, who go into let off steam when they're teenagers by dancing as long and hard and as often as they can. And we really did that. We really did dance marathons and. Um, I think that we just didn't feel that we fit in where we grew up. We, we, Jock describes it as kind of that we grew up in this fog of disapproval, you know, disapproval of being opinionated and disapproval of the clothes that we wore. And mine were always kind of vintage and a bit dodgy and disapproval of the people we dated. And, and we also, um, you know, grew up in a church where we were, where women were told that they had to submit to men and that men were priests and women were not. And, um, opinionated women, it was really not a good thing to do. That was kind of anathema. And um, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to us. And uh, we, were, we were told in very, very many ways um, that for us to even have opinions or even an interest in social justice was 
was not just a waste of time, but destructive. So when all we had was like a car, <laughs> um, we would just head to the city and find somewhere we could dance and just do that for as long as we could. And it always made us feel better. And we always had each other. You know, if you've got one other person who gets you, you can get through a great many things. Julia, in, in the final part of your book, which is called Invincible Summer, you talk a lot about the importance of savouring the small joys in life and how that will increase your happiness. I saw that a cup of tea is one of the things that you savour the most. I'm with you on that. What are the other things that, that you really savour, the small joys that you savour that bring you joy in your life? I love coming home after a swim and a hot shower and um, having a cup of tea on my porch and just watching watching the cockatoos fly overhead and the wind, the leaves all whip around in the wind. The whole idea of sussurus, that's the sound of um, the, you know, the wind in the trees. And I love walking around the headlands. Um, the teenager isn't so much into that anymore, but my little boy does it a lot and we kind of explore and find a lot of things. Um, we go kayaking. What are the other small things? I wondered about the pets. You've got a gorgeous fluffy cat oh, and a big yeah. fluffy dog. Yeah, my cat's an absolute tyrant. Um, uh, you know, delightful, but kind of aggressively. Uh, you know, he just he just controls the house as as a lot of cats do. My dog is just a massive goofball, eater of socks, and yeah, just getting up and going for a walk with him, as I did um, a couple of hours ago. He was so happy. You just couldn't like. There's just there's no way to express a greater happiness than a dog out for a walk off a leash. That is it. That is like it's it's in it's in every limb, it's in the quivering tail, it's in the flapping ears, in the breeze, all those kinds of things. Um, it's pure joy. Julia, I want to talk now a little bit about your illness. In the last five years, you've had brutal abdominal surgery three times for a very rare form of cancer. I know that you're well now, and I'm sure that you will stay well. In the periods after diagnosis and before each surgery you managed to find a deep sense of calm and of strength and of determination. What were you drawing on? How did you find that? Mm. Um, well, certainly in the, it, certainly before my first one and, and probably before my second, probably yeah, my third, like I dipped in and out of it. I began to realise that there were things I could do to bring me that calm and sometimes it was harder than others. I'm not saying that I always suddenly became like a monk the moment I got like really crappy news, you know, like, but what I did to draw on that calm, I prayed a lot and I meditated um, and I swam and I locked out drama, just not interested in drama. Um, it's hard to do, but you have to do it. You find yourself comforting people a lot of the time mm. and um, that's okay. because Dealing with their reactions to your yeah. illness. Yeah, people are really upset and you have to try to make them feel better. Mm. That's almost inevitable and you can only do that so much. It's a huge um, burden. Yeah, but at the same time you get it. Like people are, you know, people are struggling. It's hard, you know, like it, a lot is often expected of people around you and the carers around you too, it, you know, especially with mine because it really went on for quite a while. Um, so I understood all of that. But you have to, I really instinctively went like just drew my tribe around me and the people that make you laugh and the people that will just be with you and um you know it will be very pragmatic and um I just kind of alerted everyone people you know people came over and then I just 
kind of went very quiet. Like I went very calm. Like for me, the way I found strength was to was to be still and not have a lot of commotion. For me, commotion drained me. I don't like the whole uh, battle talk. How do you do right? that with two young children and two pets? <laughs> well, the pets aren't bad at that stuff. Um, you, you just, you, it's like your world and your perspective narrows to a slit, right? So you just don't do a lot of other stuff. You just, um, you just focus on them. And you, for me, it was, I had to get outside and do as much of that kind of thing as I could. And you begin the search of like the things that will give you any kind of reprieve or any kind of cheer. And for me, it was like a, I mean, I described it as like being a flower kind of drawing in for the night. It was, I, and, and people who, who've been through this or who've been through other times like that will know what that means when you kind of draw your petals in and you're like, okay, all right. I have to do this and, you know, it's that kind of steadying of yourself. I read that your faith was a great comfort to you and you described your faith as cheerful and enduring. How were you able to hold on to that faith through your illness? Um, it you, was kind of in that zone. Like I write about, it's, it's really hard to describe. I, I wonder how many other people have this, have that zone that they go to where it's still. And like, for me, the image that kept returning, returning to my mind was that um, I've actually got it on my wall. Someone gave it to me, but it's a, um, it's a woman's like suspended between the surface of the sea and the depths. And it's that idea of being in the bardo between the birth and rebirth thing. That and vertically, you said, not yeah, horizontally. Vertically, vertically, exactly. And kind of about to kind of shoot back up. To me, that's where God is in that stillness. That that's I mean, there's a reason where it's like be still and know that I'm God. Um, like when when you're suffering, it's not like you can be really cheerful and you're going to write platitudes. You're going to say, you know, the world is great. The Bible is full of like people tearing their hair out and raging against the world and their enemies and their bodies and God and you know there's there's a lot of kind of anger and fury and lamenting um throughout the scriptures and, and not just Christian scriptures obviously you know all the world's religions and whatever your faith is that sense that um suffering is is built into life and it, it is a part of life um and people always say you know you can't always control it but you can control how you respond to it I know that sounds that can sound kind of trite sometimes, but it's actually very true. So um, it's just that sense of kind of knowing that you're not not alone. It's hard to describe in, in ways that, yeah, and are not pat. But um, even at times when you're least certain, um, I've never had a problem with kind of twinning that sense of like, what the hell, how on earth can this be going on with that sense that, that you're not alone. And it was Oscar Wilde that said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And sometimes that makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're angry. Sometimes you are really sad. Sometimes you're bereft. Like all of those things. It's just, you just know that this is like a deeply human thing to be. Like this is the stuff that we go through. And I think when I came out of it really determined, as Nick Cave says, that, that you know, a purpose of life is to actively reduce the suffering of people around you and know that we all go through this stuff. Like I'm in no sense alone. 
um, or even the, you know the worst affected in in any of this. So I wanted to ask you about that because I'm about to just ask you to to wrap up our interview. I can't leave without asking you a bit about COVID nineteen, um, and that Nick Cave quote I think was my favourite quote almost in the whole book, and I wondered if that was a bit of an answer, um, perhaps to some of my questions. So. Julia, you write quite a lot about doubt and you explain that it's not a failing but a strength. I'm wondering, has COVID-19 caused you to doubt? And my question, I guess, is how do you and how do all of us live with doubt? I think COVID-19 has made us a lot more aware of a lot of the fundamental problems we have, actually, that we for a long time have believed that we couldn't possibly work together as a as you know in, in groups of countries that the, that we couldn't um, have bipartisanship and agree on certain funda- you know fundamental reforms that we couldn't find shelter for the homeless that we couldn't increase new start that we couldn't and there's a whole bunch of things that seems to be a paralysis around and actually it's weirdly encouraging to see even things like Greg Conway, Christian Porter, Sally McManus, like get together something resembling an accord in just a few days to see um, that once that we act, we can all question the way we live and how much we consume and how we behave and maybe what the impact of the earth might, might be. So no, I think, I think it's, 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 it's caused us to, question some very fundamental things about how we operate kind of as a group and individually. The other thing which I guess is related is how do you hold on to your faith in times like this when we see the devastation that's being wrought around the world? How do you and all of us hold on to to a faith? Well, I guess that now seeing what happened, what's happening just makes you more acutely conscious of how kind of you know screwed up the world is and really right now what what human beings have done to the earth I and mean, we're seeing the anthropocene age and um you know skies black with smoke and rivers choked with um you know fl- um dead fish and oceans thick with plastic we've seen all of that stuff um so i think that that's what's been exposed at a time of a pandemic as well. We've seen we've seen misinformation, um, lack of transparency, even on on the on the origins. Um, but at the same time, we have also seen a coming together to try to resolve that. I think that, I mean, as Jess Hill said in, when she was accepting her uh, Stella Prize this week, which was incredibly well deserved. It's a really important piece of work that she's done on on domestic violence. You know, we can hold hope in one hand and despair in the other. We can hold faith in one hand and a recognition that, you know, disasters can happen um, and have happened. And yet, I've seen a lot of people return to you know fundamentals of of faith in who we are and what we can do and what matters. And um, we've kind of we have shrunk in, the, in, in our physical circles at the same time we've expanded in our thinking. Um, and I, I think that will, I mean, the, the, there's so many cliches that are around already, you know, silver linings, mm. reset, um, you know, there's pivot. so many 
tequila games you could play with with the way people are talking about about corona but i i do think that for a lot of people it, it like the fact that we've had to retreat to our families and our back gardens at a time of global emergency is kind of astonishing. We don't have like, um, you know, like the literature that came out of the, the, the world wars we've had before, which is when all the, the men went away <laughs> um, and now, and, and families were broken up and there was a lot of suffering on, on that front. But now we see that for a lot of people, They've kind of had to, it's been an enforced period of stillness and you're kind of regarding what they've got around us is, will be transformative. We've seen that we don't really care so much at all about what celebrities think, but we're completely mm. delighted by families playing games with ping pong balls on saucepans. You know, there's something so gorgeous about watching families sit around and cheer. And by kind of mentioning those, I guess I'm just talking about, you know, a, a faith in humanity and that we can get it through and that at times like even of immense suffering that you can have you can see moments of beauty and you can see you know the fact that we we can stop and think about what's important which is standing outside on balconies um and leaning out of windows and applauding those people who are putting their lives at risk to make sure the rest of us survive and all those kinds of things. It's going to be an enormous kind of cultural reckoning um, what's happening now. But my own view is that if we are to talk of silver linings and to glean what it is that can come out of us to make us kind of function, to make us live better, and dream of doing more. I would hope that it's kind of like the overview effect. So when astronauts go, you know, um, and return to Earth, realizing how small the planet is, how connected we are to each other and how much we matter to each other and how hard we have to work. For me, like the, the biggest, the most important silver lining, if we're going to use that, it is if we are, if we return like the astronauts from the overview effect, in the overview effect and realise how much more we need to do to alleviate the suffering of people around us, that those people who are most impacted by all of this are, those, are the homeless, are victims of domestic violence, are people in remote communities, are African-Americans and how, um, how actually incredibly at risk our Indigenous communities are. And realise that these aren't intractable, that we can do things about it, that there can be a, a will to do about it. So for us to kind of, you know, dream a bit bigger and, and ask more of those who serve us as politicians and as leaders, I think that would be an excellent outcome. Julia, in terms of individuals, the whole thrust of your book is what people can draw on to get them through when times are tough, when things are dark. I'm assuming your advice to people listening who are finding these times very challenging is along the lines of, of, I guess, the major theme of your book, that the way we get through is to look outwards, not inwards. And you put a lot of emphasis on paying attention, just paying attention full stop, paying attention to others, living in a deliberate way. Are they all the things that you suggest people draw on now? I think that it's, you know, it, it's very hard to tell another individual, you know, what it is that will get them through, especially if it's time of great loss or, or suffering. Um, I have written about my own experiences um, and, and, and tried, to, tried to reflect on some of the things that, that gave me comfort 
And I do think that people will find strength and find their own resilience in ways that are unique and particular to them. And, and, but for me, I really realised how much paying attention to each other and the world around us and the beauty on your doorstep and how incredibly sustaining that can be, the recognising of our own smallness um, in, in the world, uh, that we are all part of, you know, not just kind of tiny dots in a vast universe, but we're all part of this kind of seething mass of huma- humanity. And um, we, we need to look after each other and we need to look outwards at e- at, at, and, and kind of recognise and identify that. And we need to look for those moments of beauty. And if we're paying attention to the world, we, we, we will. For me, it was moments of peace, uh, moments of calm and silence. I craved those. Um, I think kind of friendship and relationship and family, um, we know can give you an inestimable strength. I call all those people the crossbeams of my own resilience. And to know that, you know, I, I think with all of the things, what, what really struck me writing this book was that some of those things that can sound kind of obvious. Oh, yeah, friends. Oh, yeah, you know, it's lovely to go for walks in parks, although I think surrounding yourself with nature is a lot more than that. But um, the, you have to do that deliberately. That sense that don't wait for it to all passively happen. Like make that part of your life. Do that every single day. You don't want to wake up and spend every single day going, oh, my gosh, this, you know, like I'm going to live every day like it was my last. That would be so exhausting and frantic and ridiculous. But if you live every day knowing that there are things that will give you strength and they seem, they might seem tiny, (laughs) they might seem um, almost obvious, but parcel them into your life. You can deliberately hunt awe and pursue wonder and really value the friends around you and really, as Nick Cave said, try to actively reduce the suffering of the people around you. And I do think all those things will give you um, a a kind of incredible strength. But everyone everyone will find their own way and... I think that's I think that's that's the thing is, is is reflecting on what it will be for you. One woman that I quote in the book, and as I, I've said, like I repeatedly return to kind of an understanding of the wisdom of First Nations people in in telling us what to do to kind of you know, calm our spirits and you know reflect on our place in the world. And and there's a woman elder. She's an elder, Miriam Rose Ungermere from the Daily River. She she put a ref- reflection recently um, about how we cope with these times and I just want to read from it because she puts it so much better than I ever could and she says, how can I nourish my spirit? Each person must seek their own answers to this question. I can only speak from my experience. My spirit is nourished when I sit quietly by the river and billabongs, when I enjoy laughter of family, when I share the pain of my people in community in my community and try to and help them. These are my meditations. I reflect on them daily. When life becomes too busy, I seek solitude in the land to revive my spirit. Others tell me they nourish their spirit in their religious practice, music, the arts, and in giving themselves to serve the disadvantaged. 
I know if I am straining from my spirit when I become anxious and worried. It is a feeling in my gut that calls me to stand still and listen. And that to me pretty much says it perfectly. Beautiful. Julia, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to talk to you about that beautiful book. If you'd like to buy Julia's wonderful book, there's a link on the Books, Books, Books page of my website, nicoleaverty.com. You better hurry because I think it's sold out in a lot of places, but um, they'll be taking orders for the next print run. Next week, I'll be talking with Malcolm Turnbull about his new memoir, A Bigger Picture. Julia, thank you so much. No worries. Good luck with it. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbey.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.